Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You guys are either very, very lucky or very unfortunate because you've just got me today and you know what happens when you have Charlie here in the hot seat. I normally drag you back to the 17th century, but if you've spent any time with me on this podcast over the years at all, you'll know that I have two interests. Yes, I'm interested in two things, the 17th century and Hollywood. So we are the proper hooray for Hollywood moment today. I just like talking about glamorous people and two glamorous people. And on that note, I'm joined by a very, very glamorous guest. Jeff (laughs) Uchu is laughing at me calling him glamorous, but he is. He is glamorous, guys. He's an author and presenter of Condensed Histories, a rather excellent podcast which bridges the gap between history and pop culture. Um, I recommend it. I've just listened to an episode about The Boys. You must listen to that too. He contributes regularly to BBC History Magazine and to All About History Magazine. And his latest book is Hollywood and History, What the Movies Get Wrong from the Ancient Greeks to Vietnam. So I'm chuffed as little mint balls to have him with me here to slate some shoddy movies. Hello, Jem. <laughs> hello, hello. I tried to stay quiet, but being caught. Yeah, I've never been called that before. I, God bless you. Uh, thank you very much for that. Yes. Uh, oh, um, we're going to we're uh, off recording beforehand. Oh, we already had opinions on history movies. So. Uh-huh. Let's get stuck in, shall we? <laughs> Definitely. We've got so much to get through. So I want to start with a personal favourite, Jem, um, yeah. when it comes to Hollywood and history and ranting. The other Bolin girl. What did yes. that get wrong? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's easier to say, what did they get right? Uh, you know, okay. there was a Mary Boleyn, there was okay. an Anne Boleyn, and there was yep. a guy called Henry VIII. Uh-huh. The end. Uh, it, it is. It, you picked a really good one, and actually, that's. Uh, so there was big discussions. This is the first time I've actually had an American publisher, mm. and um, they very much wanted as much representation as possible on the front cover. Because look, it could have all just been Tom Hanks on the beaches in World War Two or whatever. So we do have uh, we do have Gladiator on the front cover. Of course, we do. Uh, but we also got Denzel Washington. Uh, you know, there in the Civil War. Uh, and then at, right at the top, you've got the other Berlin girl. Yes, uh, uh, well, is. Uh, at least a shot from it. Yeah. So you've got like, you know, women, color, etc. Uh, and different, lots of different time periods as well. But I, I think, you know, you pick a good one there because let's take, for example, Eric Banner. Now, it is true that Henry VIII wasn't always the fat dude that we we've seen in the paintings. He was actually very athletic earlier in life. Um, and so therefore having Eric Banner being pretty ripped, not unreasonable for the time. However, they dressed him like he was an old fat man. And the reason why he had such voluminous clothes with such massive sort of shoulders to them was to kind of hide his bulk. So he's the right looking Henry wearing the wrong clothes, even though those are still officially Henry VIII dress up clothes, if you like. And, um, you know, I also say in the book, they, there's this sort of real missed opportunity where there's, uh, well, as I say in the book, any time the door closes and there's then a private discussion, look, it could be a romantic discussion as happens a lot in the other Berlin girl, or it could be like two generals talking about their fears about the battle the, 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 the next day, whatever. But as soon as that door closes, it's almost telling the viewer, this is all made up. 
You know, where it may not be an unrealistic conversation, but it's surprising how little info we have on these people. You know, take it, you know, there is famously some love letters between Anne and Henry, but, you know, we don't have Henry VIII's diary from every day. Dear diary, I first saw Mary. Oh, she, I'm so swoony or something like LOL, <laughs> hashtag, you know, BFF or whatever, you know. You know, it would be lovely to have this stuff, but there's a surprising lack in history as a whole. We know who these people were, where they went, what they did, but what they were thinking, what they were feeling. Almost all characters up until probably the 19th century, the vast majority of them are actually relatively blank slates. You know, was Alexander the Great funny? We just don't know. You know, was William the Conqueror a bit racist? Probably, but we just don't know. Uh, so, you know, so when as soon as we have sort of like the bed talk between like Mary Boleyn and, and Henry, I, I say in the book, there's actually an interesting fact that they could have put it. Mary's husband, first husband, died of something called the sweating sickness. This is a forgotten sickness that affl afflicted Europe in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries. Um, and we don't really know what it was because germ theory didn't really exist in those days. So all we know is it was very, very deadly. Um, and also, just because you had it once, you didn't build up a resistance to it. You could get it again. Now, Henry's older brother, Arthur, we nearly had a King Arthur in Britain. He died of sweating sickness. Mary's first husband died of sweating sickness. And I would put money on the fact that two of them probably did talk about that a little bit. Not in the movie at all, because that's not interesting enough. And uh, at full disclosure, I have actually been a historical uh, advisor a couple of times on projects. Uh, I'm not going to say what they are because I do not want to get into any trouble. Um, and, and thank you very much for the money, by the way. I appreciate the money. <laughs> but of course, the trick there is you're an advisor. Yeah. If what you say fundamentally ruins the, uh, the directorial vision of this thing or this moment, well, the, the point is they're there to entertain you. You're paying your money not for a documentary, but for a movie, for a drama. And that's what you're going to get. And it's sometimes you've got the historian in the background going, um, well, excuse me. I, keeping with the Tudor theory, um, another even more recent movie about the women in Tudor history is you've got uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, yeah. um, which, you know, famously has this meeting between Mary and Queen Elizabeth. The two never met. Now, is it a good scene? Yes, but it's 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 gibberish. It's it's as made up as I don't know. Um, Gems or, as a War of the Worlds or something like that. Okay. Uh, you know, it's 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 nonsense. It didn't happen. It is not history. But was it a dramatic moment, well acted by two great actresses? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. So I feel like I've already ranted, and I now need to give you some oxygen <laughs> to rant away as well. Oh well, I mean, I could rant about the other Berlin girl until it's blue in the face. But um, main thing being the massive missed opportunity if they left out an entire character in Cardinal Wolsey, who mm -hmm. was kind of important, and at that time could have been spacey, would have been brilliant. Anyway, that's a that's a whole separate separate mini rant. But you know, you, this is historical fiction, so we're talking about yeah, movies are not documentaries. Fair play, but they you know, that kind of notion of having some responsibility maybe because people do pick these things up and they they run with them and they think that they're real um could be a bit of a problem and hollywood really struggles with early modern and medieval because you know not being mean to hollywood and americans but it's very much not in their wheelhouse they're only 250 odd years old they do, this is way older than them um the hair always irritates me it's always wrong but there's much bigger mistakes so what is the worst offender in your opinion at this time well do you know i'm, I'm going to pick up on, on your hair thing again because i do make the comment in in the in the book and and again if all you've ever done is seen movies about this and who sees that many images of medieval women written in actual you know drawn it uh, contemporarily and actually, when you see it, that, you know, if you are a lady, if you're a woman of status, you absolutely have your hair tucked away. Yeah. Now, in the modern mind, it's like, oh, hang on, is, is this Islam? But it does show you that there is a kind of, you know, I don't want to get too much into this. And please, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to mansplain here, but I'd love to get your <laughs> perspective on this. But I think there is a certain level of identity with women's hair and almost, dare I say, it's sort of sensuality with women's hair, like the luscious curls and all that kind of stuff. Am I? How do you feel about me saying that? 
No, I think I think you're you're entirely right. I mean, we've very much sort of fetishized the idea of, sort of medieval women as having these beautiful, long, flowing locks. I'm thinking Jodie Comer in yes. The Last Jewel. Yes. Um, and uh, of course, um, Elizabeth Woodville in in The White Queen. You're know, sort of having this very very long, free flowing hair. But yeah, no one would no one would see that really, other than your husband. And I think at your coronation, she wore her hair hair long because that's a, a marriage ceremony for, for Elizabeth Woodville. But someone will put me right on that. But in terms of this this kind of idea of medieval times being very unenlightened, being very um, you know, very sort of harsh and, and awful. It does seem that Hollywood will do that, but then also make it really sexy and glamorous at the same time. Very confused. Oh yeah. They they I mean clearly, going back to your point there, I I I do say in the book, look, sometimes I think we have to think about how honest is the filmmaker being with the audience about whether this is entertainment or not. So the example I put right at the beginning is the movie 300. Now, in that movie, there are literally monsters. There is slow motion in it. So it is obviously so hyper stylized that if you're sitting there going, I'm watching a documentary about the Battle of Thermopylae, that's on you. That's not on anybody else. Also, at no point does it flash up dates or locations on the screen. But the the movie that I probably have the biggest grudge against is Braveheart, because it flashes, the very first date it flashes up is wrong. And, <laughs> and almost everything in it is wrong, but it flashes up dates, it flashes up locations. Everybody's talking in kind of Shakespearean-ness, and, and it wins Oscars. And as a friend of mine said, and, it, you know, the legacy of Braveheart's actually got worse and worse. But as a friend of mine said, it came out a few years before the Internet and therefore they could get away with it. People would have to sit down and read a history book to realize all of the myriad of errors in Braveheart. And nowadays, there people have made lots of videos sort of saying, well, this is wrong, this is wrong. Basically, there was a guy called William Wallace and there's a place called Scotland. And that's about all they get right in that. Um, but. But it has, you know, it's a more insidious movie than than 300 because it has this veneer. If you know nothing, if you do not go onto the Internet, you're going to watch that movie. And at the end of it and go, wow, that that was clearly what happened uh, at the, over the time of William Wallace. And, it, and it's as outlandish as 300. But it, it's trying to look legit, which I have a real issue. With. But in answer to your original question, what thing do I have the biggest grumble with? It's armor. Okay. The, the people really don't understand armor. Armor is deep. everybody, every reenactor who I've dealt with, uh, I've dealt with like the Leeds Royal Armories as well. And what everybody says again and again is armor is really uncomfortable. You only wear it when you need to. But the amount of times you'll see like a feast uh, and everybody sitting there in their armor, it's like, why would you do that? It's heavy. It's uncomfortable. Um, it's either too hot or too cold. You you know, as soon as the battle's over, you take the stuff off because you you're a human being. And there are things like the white uh the white queen, where um there are people wearing half armor. Why would you do that? You know, it's either it, it, it's either it's like being dead. You either are or aren't. You're either wearing the armor or or not wearing the armor. You're not wearing half the armor. Or I'm gonna wear full armor without a helmet. You're an idiot because that's the bit that if it gets hit, you're definitely going to die. And just to be super technical for a moment, um, you'll see a lot of people putting um, a chain. I know it's technically male armor. OK, for any of medieval his, uh, historical armorers out there, male armor is the correct term. But everybody knows it as chain mail. So I'll call it chain mail. Please write but, in to Gem to do yeah, 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 yeah. Don't at me on this. Um, you'll see it directly on their head. And it's like, well, that looks like it wouldn't work because it doesn't. And and basically, the medieval uh, armorers knew this. So underneath uh, the chainmail armor on on their, you know, the halberd, the, the 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 sort of coat of of chainmail, or indeed on the head, underneath it was something called a gambeson, which was a padded woolen jacket. It's basically a shock absorber. So when you see these medieval manuscripts and illuminations, it looks like they're wearing crash helmets, big round bulk round their head, and then the chainmail on top of it because that's the way you would wear it. It was a crash helmet. So that's never in the movies because it looks silly. It, it, it looks wrong, and yet it's actually historically right. A bit like all these medieval churches were covered with, with uh, highly detailed... Oh, indeed, um, the Roman statues were all painted. They mm -hmm. were painted to look real, but the paints flaked off, 
So they're standing there next to these naked stone statues, which is historically wrong. But if they did paint them up, we would all go, oh, that's clearly wrong. So, you know, <laughs> we've, we've been trained sometimes into the historical inaccuracies. God, that's fantastic. On your, your point about, um, about armour, corsets always irritates me as well. You can breathe in a corset. They are fine. They're not as uncomfortable as you think. And at that time, your dress would be incredibly heavy. So actually having a corset to take the weight of your dress was what you needed. If you're having a panic attack, you probably need to take off your pyjamas, let alone a corset. That's a whole other thing. But corsets were not uncomfortable. That's my mini rant. But I think we can both agree. We both agree on this point that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is practically a documentary compared to some of these other clangers. Um, I read your entry on that classic, classic film, and um, you don't have a bad word to say about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. No, no, I don't, because, again, going back to the 300 example, when the intro is subtitles obsessed with moose that are then fired and then turned into llama-tastic uh, intro, uh, intro credits, if you can't work out it's a comedy by then, uh, then um, that's, again, that's on you. You have people walking. I, mean, I love the fact that because of the lack of budget, they couldn't afford horses. So what did they do? They had people running along, clacking coconuts together, which is funnier. You know, so they used the lack of budgets to their advantage. And so if, if, if anybody looks at that going, is that what the, uh, the uh, 900s look like? No, but you're a moron if you think so. But but as I said, one of the things that actually they get right is the sort of the dirtiness, the the squalor. And what you see in the really expensive 50s sword and sandal movies is because they spent all the money on the sets, everything is pristine and nothing ever is pristine. Just, you know, we're in a far more advanced society today. Do you eat your food off, off the pavement in front of your house? Uh, no, you wouldn't. So, yeah. Uh, so the fact that there's mud everywhere, there's arguments about dead people. He's, he's not dead yet. Yeah, I, uh, yes, he is. He's nearly dead. Oh, you know, that, uh, no notes. No notes. <laughs> a star. Tick. Um, yeah, could not be better. Um, but war movies. They're a yes. big favourite here at History Hack um, and also here in the White House where I am. Um, but I've noticed Chris, my husband, getting very upset about the wrong tanks on very many occasions. This is a question about war movies, specifically Second World War movies, I guess. Um, do you think that films that are dealing with recent living history have more of a responsibility to get things right than our kind of oldie, worldy films dealing with, yeah, these people have been dead for hundreds, thousands of years. They're not fussed. Um, do you think that we we have a responsibility with Second World War films? And which war films do you think have completely missed that mark? So I'm going to give you an example where, okay, in answer to your first question, again, it's down to intent. So if you want to get one of the most historically inaccurate uh, movies uh, of World War II out there, let's talk about Where Eagles Dare. The, uh, the uniforms are all wrong. They have a helicopter from Korean War. There were a couple of uh, very basic helicopters in World War II, but basically World War II did not have helicopters. Uh, you've got these strange proximity mine type things, detonators that Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton have. Uh, it's, it is wrong in every possible way. But is that the intention of Where Eagles Dead? No, it's an Alistair MacLean written thriller uh, with action, action thriller. And, you know, so I want to be quite clear on this. There are some completely historically inaccurate movies that are amazing movies. Mm. Gladiator, for example, doesn't make a lick of sense if you want to look at it purely from the historical perspective. It is one of my favorite movies. It is an amazing movie. And indeed, the people who won Oscars for that film should have won Oscars for that film. It's, it's, fab, it's fabulous. But, uh, and, and again, same thing with Where Eagles Dare, it's, it's not trying to teach you about the Holocaust. And, and I think that, so going back to your point there about, um, you know, talking about recent events, it depends on what they're trying to go for. And also it depends on the events. So, you know, every single movie about the Holocaust has tried to get it right. Even Life is Beautiful, which is a made up story, 
is not shying away. Well, it's interesting. That one's PG. So it's an introduction to the Holocaust to, to people. Same with the, uh, the boy in the striped pajamas as well. But, you know, if, if they were to suddenly sort of like have a knockabout, wear eagles, dare style, style movie around the Holocaust, well, it simply wouldn't be made. It would be so appalling to people. Yeah. And um, I mentioned I had an American publisher. So we went backwards and forwards on a, an, a chapter about civil rights because I'd already written the book. My normal publisher went, it's just not right for us. So I had to go somewhere else, ended up in America. So I'd already written it and it didn't have a chapter on civil rights because it is very recent history. Uh, and also I'm a white guy in Britain. Um, and basically they turned around and said, if, if we're going to publish this, it has to be in there. It is a part of American history and it is, we are an American publisher. And I'm glad they did because spoiler for the book, I guess, uh, the most historically accurate movies in the book as a genre are the civil rights movies. Because a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are made by black filmmakers. Mm. And the impact of the civil rights movement, well, let's be honest, uh, you know, it's there's still work to be done around the world. OK, I'm not just picking on America, although it can lead to some weird stuff. There was a movie about the Korean War called Devotion uh, came out last year starring. Um, well, it was about the first black um, fighter pilot, so combat pilot in the U.S. Air Force, and he served in Korea. And so obviously the, the events in the movie are true. Um, but there was a scene where this really happened. He met Elizabeth Taylor in southern France. Um, but then he goes with his pals to the casino and then he's not let in because he's black. And I looked into that and I went, this doesn't feel right because France, again, France has its own problems with race. Yeah. But France doesn't have segregation like America did in the 1950s. And I looked into that and that scene was made up. So it makes sense to an American audience, but it's completely historically inaccurate. And and so it has kind of crept into, uh, it's like, oh, America had segregation? Everybody had segregation. No, yeah. the civil rights story is a specifically American story. Now, I'm very careful in the book, say, again, every country has a problem with race, uh, you, you know, uh, but it is different for every country. Um, so, it, you know, you get movies like Selma, like Detroit, like Black Klansman, like um, Judas and the Black Messiah. These are made with such love and devotion and care. But going back to the very first, um, the first movie, uh, The Other Berlin Girl, there's a movie called One Night in Miami, where a number of these sort of like civil rights people all meet in a hotel. Now, they definitely were all there at the same time. And it's actually a play that gets turned into uh, a movie. And it's, but it's all conjecture. And, and, but, it, but if you like, that's one of the few ones where you're allowed to have some fun. Because, uh, you know, none of these people by the end of the evening are going to be dead or arrested or anything. Now, some of them, like Martin Luther King, you know, will end up being assassinated, etc. So it's a it's a marvel. It, you know, that one is a bit more fun. It's a bit lighter, but it's making some very serious points about these very important people who are part of the civil rights movement. But because it means so much to the filmmakers, they get it right. Whereas when Mel Gibson was making Braveheart, he was just trying to be fun. And uh, he happened to pick real history and play very fast and loose with it. That's incredible. I mean, I, I'm I'm really glad you included that in the book because it is such an interesting part of it's a in, interesting part of Hollywood history because you know Hollywood and its own history and its its portrayal of history it's frozen in amber like a mosquito in Jurassic Park. Um, which we can all agree could actually happen and is totally historically <laughs> accurate. Um, so anyone at any point can look at Hollywood film from the 1920s, the 1930s, 1940s and say, OK, this this is what they thought was OK to put on the screen at the time. And how certain groups, especially how black people have been represented in Hollywood over the last hundred years is fascinating to look at. And we are still dealing with the repercussions of that now i say that knowing that i am possibly the whitest person in the whole world and my surname is white um <laughs> le and the fact that you you address civil rights in this is really interesting but can we agree can we agree that green book as a film released in 2018 needs to get in the sea for so many reasons uh, yeah 100 percent. as i say in the book uh you know if this whole thing is about empowering black people 
the white guy gets nominated for best actor, the yep. black guy gets nominated for best supporting, supporting. actor. It's like you haven't really learned anything, have you guys? <laughs> and and also, as I say in, in, in that section on civil rights, it's like uh, you know, it seems that Vigo Mortensen, you know, he can bully the racists. It's sort of like, okay, that's that's fun in a movie. That doesn't solve the problem at all. Uh, so, so yes, um, yeah, Gr- Green Book is a surprisingly old and unnew. You were, you could imagine that that might be made in the 1960s. Yeah, uh, you know, as, as a sop to sort of like African Americans. It yeah. was insane that it came out in 2018. Yeah, this this kind of is this sort of terrible white savior um, thing and the horrible yuck. Um, I was upset, very upset, to read the Pocahontas is um, <laughs> not true to the history. Are you seriously telling us, Jim, that Disney played fast and loose with the facts? Why on earth would they do that? Yeah, see, um, Pocahontas was a really interesting one because that's another one where I'd finished the book and, and I, I got the, these notes from the Americans. and They said, why have you done Pocahontas? And I just burst out laughing. and went, of course I should do Pocahontas. <laughs> but you see, I'm sitting there going, you know, when I'm thinking about movies, I'm obviously thinking about live action movies. Yeah. And generally, when people start singing, that's a clue that it might not be 100% historically accurate. I, do you know, what? I want to live in the universe where all I have to do is turn around to my wife in the street, say something, and everybody starts doing synchronized dancing, and we all have a great dance. And that's how we resolve a domestic dispute in the middle of Sainsbury's or something. Yeah. yeah? That, but unfortunately, I don't live in that parallel world. Um, so yeah, so the, the interesting thing about Pocahontas is how insanely wrong they got it. There, there are so many things they got wrong with it, fine. But to have the white settlers get on a ship to head home at the end of the movie, it's like, you are sitting there in a cinema in St. Louis. You do know the white guys did not go home. It's, it was, it was so, so bizarrely counterfactual that that's why I initially didn't include it. But, but you know, um, it's in a whole area where uh, I, I go into the book that it's really interesting what words they use to describe these movies set in the past. Uh, you know, so I, I make the point that um, there's things like costume drama. Well, in Gladiator, everybody's wearing costumes and it's a drama. Do we use the term costume drama for Gladiator? No, we might use the term historical epic or sword and sandal or yeah. war movie. But when we say war movie, um, you know, I sometimes read things like the top 20 war movies of all time, and they might include Return of the King, you know, the Lord of the Rings third movie. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of war in it. But is that, a war? you know, yeah. I don't feel sorry for orcs dying, uh, you know, whereas, you know, the, the massacres at Gallipoli or the beaches of uh, Iwo Jima, that's a different thing. So, you know, what is a war movie exactly? And also, which war? We, we've got Napoleon coming out in a few weeks' time. I, I don't know when this recording yeah, is yeah. coming out, but it hasn't come out at the time of recording. Is that a costume uh, costume drama, historical epic, war movie, period piece is another phrase that's used. And so, uh, yeah, I, it, it seems pretty arbitrary, but boiling it down, whenever anybody uses costume drama, it's basically a female-heavy story. So really... It's almost like an acceptable phrase of historical chick flick, which is completely, um, absolutely unfair to the likes of things like Pride and Prejudice and Sense yeah. and Sensibility and things like that. They're far better written than something like the, the other Berlin Girl, which also can we agree? We didn't say on this. I guess books and movies don't necessarily get the same titles. I think it's a clever book name. It is a terrible name for a movie. The other Berlin Girl sounds like you really want to know about the, the main Berlin girl, but instead we're going to focus on the other Berlin girl, the less popular Beatles act or whatever. No, no, awful. Or the idea of you, know, the madness of King George the Third, having to be having yes. to be called the madness of King George because because the audience would wonder what happened to parts one and two. Which... Specifically, the American audience would wonder, oh, I haven't seen Madness of King George one and two. Therefore, I'm not going to know what's happening in the third one. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, there's a this is a an interesting point with historical films. Um the idea of what you know. If you know, then you know, like like I say, watching more films with Chris, I don't know that that's the wrong tank. It doesn't spoil my enjoyment of the film. I don't know that it's wrong. I just watch it as as it 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is. In the same way, stage beauty, which also needs just to be torn down as a terrible piece of historical cinema because it's Charles II and they get things wrong and I get upset. Completely the wrong Duke of Buckingham. They've put the first Duke of Buckingham in the place of where his son would be, the second Duke of Buckingham. So you've got this dark, um, with an old-fashioned beard, um, very interested in in the, the young male actors, um, having a lovely time, Duke of Buckingham, whereas his son was blonde, um, more interested in the female actors, uh, completely the wrong Duke of Buckingham. That spoils it for me. But if you didn't know, you'd just watch this film and it's all very interesting. So do you think that knowing things spoils films? Well, <laughs> well you, I mean, using Gladiator as an example, it's sort of like, well, that didn't happen. And that, that, why is that happening? And blah, blah, blah. But um, I still love the movie. Mm. Uh, I, I think the problem comes when... You know, I deliberately, you know, I say, what does Hollywood get wrong from ancient Greece to, to Vietnam? But I deliberately, and we had this conversation with the publishers, I was never going to write, you know, that you, there are all these websites which go, I think you'll find that the uh, British uh, military had three buttons on their sleeve at this time, not two. Nobody cares except you. That doesn't change <laughs> anything. OK, and I guarantee there'll be a host of people saying wrong buckles in the Napoleon movie. OK. But again, there's limitations on budget. I had this conversation with another podcaster. It's like the thing about Joaquin Phoenix, he's a great actor, but he is at the age of Napoleon round about the time of Battle of Waterloo at the end of his career. So when we see him in like 1793, this is a guy who's in his uh, early 20s. And it's remarkable to know that he conquered Italy, something that everybody else had failed to do since the Roman Empire by the age of 26. But he's going to look like a middle-aged man in the movie. But there's not a lot you can do about that. There are just simply physical limitations. So the example of Chris and the Tanks, I um, I think for most of the time in things like uh, uh, A Bridge Too Far, there is a limit on budget. There aren't that many World War II tanks around or workable. So we're going to use 1960s tanks and stick slap a swastika on the side of it and just go with us. It's a panzer, OK? And But I get that the aficionados get crazy about that. Uh, to the extent where I have a friend, um, Saving Private Ryan is pretty accurate. But the scene right at the end with the Tiger Tank, the Tiger Tank uh, has its track blown off. And my friend said, you could tell that that was a uh, a Russian chassis because the drive shaft was at the wrong end of the tank. Oh, come on. Nobody cares. You are completely 100% factually right. You're not going to give them 10 out of 10 for dressing the rest of the tank to accurately look like a Tiger. You have noticed the drive shaft. That has that's not going to take a star off the movie review. Um, but the one time I will back up the tank thing is the Sherman tank is a very distinctive shape. The Sherman tank is the definitive allied, it wasn't the only one, but it's the definitive allied tank of World War II. So in the uh costume drama of Tea with Mussolini, which was largely targeted at middle-aged women, to yeah. have the German army specifically with a Sherman tank with a swastika slapped on the side of it. It's like, could you not have found, if you've got a modern tank, that would be less distracting <laughs> than a Sherman, which is, again, it's it's such a distinctive looking tank. You don't need to be a tank expert to know what a Sherman looks like. So, I, you know, how much these things, again, annoy me depends on how serious is this movie. Yeah. And there, there is nothing historically, I mean, there, 
for starters, we're in the Anglo-Saxon era in, in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, but clearly they're, they're channeling the, the 12th century. I wasn't sitting there going, the armor's wrong. You know, the swords are wrong. Why are they, you know, why is there a Frenchman in a castle in England? Um, where did they get coconuts? Yeah, where do they get, well, I mean, I think that's to do with the sparrows, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, but sorry. Um, sparrows, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, so again, if it's if it's just there as pure entertainment, uh, you know, um, where eagles are, uh, where eagles dare, uh, Monty Python, 300, fine. But when it is more like a break, when it is more like the other Berlin girl, which was trying, again, it has a veneer of we've done the homework and clearly it hasn't if you know anything about it. But I, I do find it interesting that nowadays, unlike, I think one of the first movies I do is a silent film. Um, well, I, I know it's the first one, Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille from the 1920s. And he just threw everything into the movie to make it look old and exotic and Egyptian. Whereas today, you have to have a historical uh, you know, advisor. It kind of like if you didn't, that would be brought up in the review. But that again, that doesn't mean that they are obliged to follow the historical advisor's information. Now, I again, I have a hunch Ridley Scott really likes Napoleon, and this is a passion project. And I'm sure he's going to get most of it right. But at some points, he's going to say what's going to work, look good on the camera versus what actually happened. And over the weekend, full disclosure, I saw. Again, terrible name. The Killers of Flower Moon. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Martin Scorsese movie uh, about ge genuinely this all happened in Osage County. The Native Americans in the 1920s get oil and these white men come in, start marrying the women, blah, 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 blah. You know, they specifically use racial epithets, which is historically accurate. But the one thing I noticed in this movie that is desperate to try and A, tell a story that's never been told before on, in, in cinema, and B, get it historically right. I there was it was interesting that at one point one of the native americans uses the term genocide now that just wasn't used until after world war Two. yeah what happened to them was genocide but that is a that's an anachronism which i'll absolutely allow and yeah. and to start nitpicking over that it's all like gem you're missing the point there was a genocide and yeah. and so therefore I, and, and and to use any other word a modern a modern viewer wouldn't have got that point necessarily so that that's a point where I'll absolutely allow the anachronism to happen. Gosh, well, it's, it, that takes us, I mean, very neatly to a next thing that I'd like to discuss because that is Martin Scorsese's latest film. And I must confess to you, Gem, that as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, the film that made me want to study films, funnily enough, Goodfellas, watched it far too young, but uh, terrible cavalier parents, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, I never really thought of gangster movies like Goodfellas and The Godfather as being historical films, but you you argue that several of them fall into that category. Um, you discuss the three Godfather films in detail and touch on several of the key historical moments in. Them. I mean, straight away, I'm thinking, you know, the whole the whole sort of premise of it is that Michael Corleone has gone off and fought in the Second World War for yeah. his for his country, and he comes back, and now he's kind of got that. Is he going to serve his country or his family? Um, but you also talk about the Cuban Revolution as shown in Godfather 2. And this is really interesting in your book. Can you tell us about this? So, uh, well, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to expand on it because uh, Oliver Stone created a two-part movie called Che, as in Che Guevara. Yeah. And I can't stand Che Guevara. I am well aware that there are many students who will have a poster on you know, the famous poster of Che Guevara on their wall. But of course, that was not created by him. He had the photo taken of him. And then there was a, a brilliant uh, Cuban um, designer who created it. And it is a design classic. Yeah. He's the subject of it, not the creator of it. And the thing that drives me crazy about Che is he he. From a historical perspective, he failed to learn any of the lessons of why the Cuban Revolution worked. Uh, and, you know, the Cuban Revolution was important. It, this is a classic example of a military dictatorship. And this, this, is the, this is the story, and I make this point in the book, this is the story of America in the entirety of the second half of the 20th century. Mm. They are scared of communism. Now, with hindsight, we can all go, what were they scared of? But I think it's valid, in, particularly in the 1950s, with Joseph Stalin running the Soviet Union. Joseph Stalin's not a good guy, okay? For, for the people who are 
anti-America and anti-CIA. I hear you. But if you look on the other side, you're not seeing, a, you know, a woke liberal. OK, this is, you know, so there are reasons why America might be anxious about the spread of communism. Um, however, ju just backing a, a right wing Junta Hunter, I've heard it pronounced both ways. I still can't work out how to pronounce it. But anyway, right wing military dictatorships in particularly in Central and South America, just because they say we're not communist, uh, allowing them to, uh, you know, brutalize their nations uh, is an incredibly sad part of American foreign policy in the second half of the 20th century. But the reason why the Cuban Revolution worked and the reason why a number of, of revolutions and insurgencies work is because the locals are on your side. Your fighters can disappear into the local community and the, uh, you know, the military can't find you. Uh, and this is where you start getting massacres of villages and towns. So there was very good reasons to overthrow the then incumbent uh, uh, dictatorship. But it is worth pointing out, Cuba then became a left wing dictatorship with its own secret police that that, yeah. that looked in on its people. But Che, the next place he went to with this great idea, oh, look, we We've done the revolution in Cuba. We're now going to go to Angola, where you don't know the local language. Uh, you certainly can't blend in with the local black uh, black community. And it failed miserably. But also, he's, he then goes into South America to try again. I guess at least he looks like the locals and speaks the local language. But you get the people turning around saying, oh, it's terrible. The CIA turned up and hunted him down and, and killed him. It's like, Okay, so if the idea is that somebody from another country goes in and starts causing violence is bad, which I think we can all agree, yeah. what was he doing there? <laughs> he's an he's a foreigner insurgent with with you know creating violence. It's sort of like he died, he died by his own uh, rules, and so for that reason, he's not a martyr. He's actually a pretty bad revolutionary who seemed to get right get it right once, and it was of course. Che Guevara was part of the Cuban Revolution, not the Cuban Revolution. It was Fidel Castro who was the main guy. And every time Fidel wasn't there, he lost. So I actually think that Che Guevara is one of the most overrated people in history. <laughs> he makes a great poster. And he's also probably a cautionary tale of don't believe your own hype. I love that. I think that definitely needs to be a history hack down the pub episode. Most overrated person in history. That needs to be a thing. There but, are a um, few of them. Yeah. I mean, underrated <laughs> is also equally interesting. And invariably, they tend to be women. Uh, but yeah, uh, overrated, there's quite a lot of puffery around some people. But anyway, yeah. I definitely hear that. But um, seriously, guys, do pick up this book and check out what Jem has to say about um, The Godfather 2, because I think that, that you, you described it as being a minute of film in which the entire sort of um american foreign policy is so beautifully illustrated for the viewer and uh, you just don't expect it there it's almost like it comes out of completely out of left field absolutely thank incredible. you very much for that. so i'm going to give you a moment to rant because we do need to wrap it up because i will talk to you all day um come on then <laughs> what is the worst most terrible awful piece of hollywood history that has ever been committed to celluloid okay well i'm, I'm gonna uh, Jump around a few. Uh, I, I think, first of all, undeniably, the the worst, most poisonous one uh, has to be qu because quite literally uh, is uh, the Conqueror, which is the. I'm not making this up, people. You're going to think that I that I've completely made this up. John Wayne, good with horses. He's done loads I of cowboy movies. Let's make him Genghis Khan and stick a Fu Manchu <laughs> style moustache on him. Uh, so yeah, so he gets to play Genghis Khan. But the point is, the film was filmed uh, on the desert area that had been used for nuclear testing. Um, and, and then they took some of this radioactive sand and dumped it in the studio, more than 100 tons of it, to create continuity. So then when they did the internal shots and something like two thirds of the people uh, got cancer from it. So not only is oh. it racist, it genuinely killed people. Uh, all of the Mongols are played by Native Americans. Uh, it's just all kinds of wrong. Um, but, wow. but perhaps the most I mean, look, uh, and Braveheart, I've said enough on. But the other one that's also equally racist and poisonous and difficult to sort of um, ignore is, um, uh, says Jem now, it's completely gone out of my head. Uh, it's the one about the Ku Klux Klan. Um, black Klansman? No, sorry. Oh, the, older. The, the, uh, yeah, older, the, the black and white one. It's completely gone out of my head. 
Thank you, Birth of a Nation. God, I do have it in there. Yes, this is why I write books, so I don't have to remember all this stuff. (laughs) But the thing about Birth of a Nation, it is, it's rated U, Mm. and it's completely unwatchable by modern standards. Um, Mm. Every single person of colour in the movie is portrayed as savage, and also there's a lot of blackface in it as well. It is a completely made-up story about how the Ku Klux Klan saved the South. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, w- was created after uh, the uh, American Civil War, um, and it's. But here's the thing: it was one. It was a huge hit at the time when it came out, and also it's um, it, it's one of the first Hollywood epics. You know, it's a. It's got a genuinely wrong long runtime. It's got big action set pieces. A lot of you know people are putting a lot of effort into this movie, and therefore. Hollywood can't ignore it. It's like the biggest grossing movie in ever, if you adjust for inflation, is Gone with the Wind, which is similarly problematic. Not as problematic as Birth of a Nation, yeah. but it's, it's to, again, if you were to watch uh, Gone with the Wind right now on, on Amazon, it actually comes up before you see the movie with like, these are pictures of the time, you might find this uh, you know, insensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not wrong, but again, that's kind of depressing because Scarlett O'Hara is one of the most complex female characters of the first half of the 20th century and you actually get to see some amazing female you know female performances in it and it's a female centric country but then there's also all the racism in it too and um but with Birth of a Nation if you're going to talk about how Hollywood turned from just like the uh penny show you know like uh, sort of like um it was in there with vaudeville it's like here's a five minute movie and isn't it weird seeing a train pull into a station yeah. turning it into an actual narrative art form, you can't ignore Birth of a Nation, and yet it's toxic by today's comparison. So please, don't give any money to anybody for Birth of a Nation. Don't watch it. Just take my word for it. It's really racist, but actually quite important to the... Well, no, it's not really racist. It's the most racist, okay? Yeah. It, it's more racist than um, than Triumph of the Will, because at least everybody in that is German, okay? So... Uh, Birth of a Nation, absolutely appalling, but uh, uh, the start of Hollywood. It's it's so it's so upsetting because it is you know in terms of sort of technique and things that we are now we take for granted about filmmaking as an art. Um, that was very much the first thing that has been popularized. But it the membership of the the clan rose exponentially after that because people saw it and thought this is brilliant i'm going to join the ku klux klan it's awful if you want another alternative to watch check out the films of alice guy blaché because she was making um, narrative cinema before cecil b demille um but she's been left out of the history books and they're a lot less problematic and they include fairies um which is wonderful is there a film that you'd give an a star let's end on a positive note is there any film that you look at and you think do you know what nailed it um true to the facts Costumes good, love the hair, dialogue spot on, right tanks. <laughs> I love the hair. I don't think that's really important. Um, I, uh, I, okay. So, in, in terms of my personal favorite movie ever, that's got to, uh, that's historical, it's probably Gladiator. But in terms of getting the facts right, I'm going to give you two Vietnam films. You've got Platoon, which was literally made by a Vietnam veteran, Oliver Stone, that had Dale Dye, who served there putting the men through boot camp, which is incredibly incredibly important for history because that's the first time they'd ever done the boot camp thing for actors. So, Mm -hmm. And now that, again, that's just become standard. We're making a war movie. You've got to do a boot camp. Um, And, you know, that was so... There's the really hard-to-watch village scene I was watching it with my eldest, um, you know, I wanted to show him a Vietnam film. And he just said at halfway through the village scene, he goes, this isn't an army. This is just a rabble. I'm like, yeah, that's the, 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 yeah. the point here. So it's completely historically accurate. The, the, indeed, Oliver Stone and Dale die after the filming of the village scene. They just had to walk away. They, they just couldn't take they They were recreating a crime scene, not making a piece of cinema at that point. However, my uncle, uh, I'm half American. My uncle served in Vietnam. And so, well, he's got lots of positive, well, he has terrible things to say about the war. He had a bad war, like pretty much everybody there. But he said, in his own opinion, Apocalypse Now, while it is, it's sort of poetic. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's nonsensical. It is, um, you know, it is, I guess, in some ways, historically inaccurate. But it, he said, you know, you want to know what it was like in Nam? It was that. Uh, and so seeing he was there, and it is an absolutely powerhouse of a movie. It famously, Coppola said, 
this movie isn't about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. He said that uh, uh, it can. Um, and yeah, it is. And and as I say in the book, and I think it's the last the last movie in the book, it's like there are four different versions of it that you can see. So if you want to spend a whole afternoon uh, absorbing the horror, uh, then, you know, I'm not saying it's a fun ride, but it's it's it, it shows you the power of cinema and also uh, the power of history. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Gem. This has been absolutely wonderful. Hollywood and History, What the Movies Get Wrong from Ancient Greeks to Vietnam is out now. Get yourself a copy, do yourself a favour. And where can we follow you online, Gem, and listen to your incredible podcast? Well, uh, uh, Condensed Histories is available wherever you get podcasts like this one. And Yay. also, uh, I'm at Gem Deducu on Twitter, X, call it whatever you want. And also, the thing is that I don't use Instagram. So I, I am also on threads, but I have like seven followers on threads. I'm also at Gem Deducu there. Say hi to me there. Uh, but yeah, uh, probably Twitter's the best place to grab. Fantastic. We'll all give you a follow. Thank you so much for joining me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.